Welcome back to Curious Combinations, an Everything's Unoriginal podcast. I'm AF Tanith, and today I'm covering Umbrella Academy Season 3, Episode 4. So, um, Klaus is dead again. Bet that's gonna last. Now, before I get into this, I want to point out that it's been brought to my attention that I've made an error. Specifically, there's a key element of the previous seasons of the show that I have been failing to consider. So here's what I did. I went back to season one and rewatched the prologue of the season finale. You know the one. It's that scene of Reginald talking to a mystery woman who plays a violin on an unknown planet or plane or dimension or whatever. The woman is clearly someone that Reginald cares for, perhaps a family member or a lover or perhaps just a dear friend. But the most important part of the scene is what Reginald does at the end of it. In my memory, the most interesting part of this scene is the appearance of rockets taking off in the distance. That, however, is not accurate. Not anymore, at least. The most interesting part of this scene is, instead, what Reginald is doing at the end of it. The woman tells him to go, and he kisses her goodbye, walks to the window, and releases a now-familiar collection of shimmering yellow lights to the wind. These are the very same lights that infected the 43 mothers on October 1st, 1989. Reginald is the one who magically raped these women and forced them to give birth. He impregnated them against their will and bought their children like livestock. And while it hasn't been revealed to the characters yet, it essentially has been revealed to the audience. Or at least those of us paying enough attention to catch it. And that both shapes my theories about what the hell is going on this season and makes me even more convinced, along with what happens in this episode, that Reginald is still acting with some larger plan. As for the woman and her relation to Reginald's motivation, however, well, that interests me. It appears that Reginald released these fairy lights on the prompting of this woman, but why? Are these lights related to her in some way? Are they in some capacity hers, like her spirit or her powers or something of that sort? If so, it would add an emotional element to Reginald's interest in the kids. But that's something he's pointedly lacking. He does not love these children. He treats them like tools at best and mistakes at worst. So, I just don't know what to make of any of this, I guess. But, as I said, it was pointed out to me that I was misremembering a key detail of that scene, so I'm glad I went back and rewatched it. It kind of makes me want to go back and rewatch all of Reginald's scenes, if I'm being honest, but who's got time for that? So on, I will barrel, woefully unaware of any other potential hints that I've simply forgotten in the long months since I've watched seasons 1 and 2. And hopefully I won't make any more too egregious errors? Though this is a pretty perfect time for me to have realized that I made this one, as this is the episode that jossed a big part of my theory anyway. The thing in the basement isn't behind the powers, or so it seems so far. The thing in the basement is a black hole consuming the universe, a fantasy take on a Kugelblitz, and right now it seems to be solely a force of destruction, not one of creation. But I'm still stuck on how Grace and Marcus claimed it was talking to them, so I'm not sure this is as simple as Five makes it seem. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. Let's begin back at the beginning. Episode 4 opens with the animals version of the House of the Rising Sun playing over a flashback explaining what happened to Harlan after Victor left Sissy. 
and it is nothing good. Sissy tries to move on with her life, becoming Dana Pocket and finding herself a new home and a new girlfriend, but everything quickly falls apart when it becomes clear that Harlan can't control his powers. They burst out of him in violent ways, and he and his mother are forced to move again and again and again to escape the consequences. And when Sissy dies of cancer on October 1st, 1989, the worst apparent coincidence in the history of coincidences creates the grandfather paradox threatening to destroy everything. Sissy dies, Harlan can't handle it, and just as unfortunate virgin births are about to occur, Harlan psychically lashes out and melts the brains of at least six of them. Luther, Diego, Allison, Victor, Klaus, and Five's moms are all killed and I'm looking forward to finding out exactly how. Why did Harlan connect with these women? The timing here is what seems to be a coincidence right now, not the direction in which the violence points. Harlan didn't mean to kill those girls, no, but there's no way to get around the fact that they clearly died because he has powers and they were about to give birth to children with powers. And again, how the hell does that tie into whatever the fuck Reginald was doing way back in season one when he released those lights? Tell me where they came from. Seriously, I'm begging you. In the present, Stanley gets sent away from the battle, but not without giving his dad a touching hug that Diego has definitely not earned. And then in comes Klaus, asking what the hell Victor did to the dead sparrows. Luckily, Victor's siblings are on his side this time. They know that it wasn't Victor's fault, and Diego recognizes Harlan as the kid from Dallas last season. Sloane chooses that moment to wake up and freak out at the sight of her dead siblings, which is a piss-poor move because it happens right in front of Allison and Diego. Everyone breaks off in different directions at this point. Harlan runs with Victor chasing after him, Sloane runs with Luther and Diego chasing for different reasons, and Victor sends Allison to help Luther, which is an awful decision that really highlights for me why Victor should not be allowed to make any Allison-related decisions. I need Five to babysit her, because he actually knows what the fuck he's doing most of the time, and he is capable of handling her bad ideas. But instead, she's left with Diego, who is the single worst brother for her to be alone with. Diego and Allison are going to be terrible influences on each other indeed. But back at the commission, Five and Lila have the realization that the time apocalypse is affecting everyone, including places out of time like the commission. So, um, now that the when of the commission has been clarified for me, what the fuck do you mean the commission is a place outside of time? What is outside of time? Really, I suppose I'm asking for the mechanics of this universe and its timeline or timelines? That's the big question for me right now, I think. Is this a verse in which there is a timeline or one in which there are timelines? Plural. I don't think we've ever had a clear and concise answer on that. Given the plot of this season, I assumed that we were dealing with a single malleable timeline, but the existence of a place or of places outside of time demands the existence of… what precisely? Time and not time? If this place can be outside of time, why can't there be other places outside of time? And if this is a place outside of time, why would it be affected by the Kugelblitz? Why aren't places outside of time safe harbors during a crisis like this? Why is it only the Founder's Panic Room that remains immune to the destruction? And how does the Founder's Panic Room remain immune? I have so many questions about the mechanics of this, and no answers, and no way to tell if this is the kind of show interested in answering that kind of question anyway. Is this a sit-back-and-enjoy-it time travel story? Or can I expect to eventually get a loose rundown of the rules here? 
Back in the present, Sloane runs through the hotel seeking safety, and the corridors are really giving overlook, but that's a topic for another time. Sloane ambushes Luther, which unfortunately distracts her long enough for Diego to get a knife to her throat. And then, in comes Allison to make everything worse. Allison and Diego at this point are in, like, a feedback loop of being the worst two siblings. They've been steadily clawing their way out of the pits that their own worst impulses have dug for them during earlier seasons, but now Allison is uniquely emotionally primed to co-sign all of Diego's most toxic, immature impulses, and without anyone there to temper her, she's rapidly going off the rails. Outside of the hotel, Harlan and Victor play catch-up with one another. Harlan claims that after the lake, he can feel the presence of other super-powered people, and I find his description of the whole thing very interesting. To look back at the very beginning of this, or at least the earliest point that I can pinpoint, we have those power-giving fairy lights in the presence of a woman who played the violin. Victor's powers, too, have long been associated with sound and with music. He destroyed the moon and caused that first, or second, depending on how you count, apocalypse with his bow. And now, Harlan is describing being able to sense other powered people through vibrations in his mind. And of course, the whole thing comes from Gerard Way and has been thoroughly doused in non-diegetic music all along, so yes, there's no getting around it. Music is the lifeblood of this series. Umbrella Academy has always equated powers with sound and with music. I wonder what, though, if anything, we're going to be doing with that as we move through the rest of the season. As for Harlan, he's having an issue. He claims that he wasn't, quote, meant for this power, by which he means that he wasn't born with it the way the others were. And to be frank, I think that doesn't actually matter. I think his real problem is that he simply hasn't had any support in trying to handle his powers. His powers are, quite frankly, bigger than everyone else's save Victor's. Only Victor could have ever understood what he was going through and truly nurtured him through it. But Victor left him in a really sad twist on the old true-to-life trope of an absent father. And a part of me wonders, especially when Victor admits to Harlan later that he wishes he'd never left Sissy, a part of me wonders if that's the happy ending we should be trying to work toward. Maybe what we need to do is get Victor back to 1963 in whatever capacity is possible, because that would help stabilize this whole thing. Though I do have a different theory that's my main one right now, if I'm being honest, and I will get to that later, so for now, let's move on. Inside the hotel, Allison rumors Sloane into telling her where the briefcase is, and Allison's powers nearly fry Sloane's brain as surely as Harlan's did to their moms. Allison has just wildly lost the plot at this point. She's overwhelmed and traumatized and totally out of control right now. And it's not like she doesn't know it. She knows that she's acting unhinged out of panic and despair and the frustrated helplessness of not being able to fix what's gone wrong in her life. And so she goes into the bathroom to try to calm down and she rumors herself into being happy. Or at least, she tries. Her eyes glow, which implies that it's working, but she doesn't come out of the experience any happier. Instead, she shoves her fist through the mirror, picks up a shard, and gives herself the familiar haircut that I last called out in my dark coverage. I don't want to get too into it again, but what Allison does here is... Well, I'm formulating this theory that what Allison does in this scene is an expression of a certain subtle misogyny in our culture that keeps seeping into our stories. 
Now, I want to say right up front that Victor's haircut earlier this season is a lovely subversion of usual tropes. Victor's haircut is used the way that haircuts should be handled in modern stories. Victor's haircut is affirming, empowering, and euphoric. It's an expression of taking charge of his narrative, of establishing his identity, and of a positive turn in his mental health. But that's not what haircuts normally are in TV stories. The more stories that I watch, the more I find that haircuts and hairstyles are exceptionally tied to gender-specific expressions of mental health in modern storytelling. In men, long hair is often a visual indicator of mental instability or a lack of morality. In the MCU, for instance, one of the visual indicators of Thor's depression is him letting his hair grow back after changing up his look in Ragnarok. And Bucky Barnes' arc, from hero to villain and back again, is paralleled by his journey from a short-haired man to a long-haired one and back again. In the aforementioned Dark, Ulrich keeps his hair cut short until he's imprisoned in a mental hospital, at which point he grows it out until it's flowing. In Vampire Night, which I've also recently watched, Zero and Ichiru are identical in every way except for the length of their hair, their morality, and their mental stability. Zero keeps his hair short and is one of the good guys, supposedly, while Ichiru wears his hair long and literally helped murder his whole family. Even in this very show, we have Diego's hair, which was short until he ended up in a mental hospital, at which point he wore it long until he addressed his issues and returned to his proper time, at which point he cut it short again. And then there's the way that media handles women's hair. While stories in general are beginning to be kinder toward long-haired men, helped, no doubt, by the mainstream success of properties like Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones, it has long since been normalized for women to have short or long hair. But it's still only normal for women's hair to be a certain standard of short. Pixie cuts are still not common in visual media. And on-screen haircuts for women? Oh, they're nothing short of an indulgence in trauma. In V for Vendetta, Evie has her head shaved as part of her torture and attempted brainwashing at the titular character's hands. In Buffy, the slayer in question chops off her golden locks as an expression of her self-hatred during her toxic relationship and suicidal depression in season 6. In Game of Thrones, Cersei's head is sheared short to humiliate her and kept that way when she evolves from being a minor antagonist to being the political plotline's big bad. And in the aforementioned dark, Marta chops off her hair as an expression of despair and guilt and self-hatred in a breaking down in front of the mirror scene almost identical to Buffy's and to Allison's here. This is a thing. This is a thing that our culture keeps doing. Women keep standing at their bathroom sinks and chopping off their hair because they can't handle their emotions. And I don't mean to argue that it's not accurate to real life in some capacity. In a certain sense, it definitely is. Pop psychology will gladly tell you so if you just go looking for a few seconds. The reason that real people and fictional characters alike both cut off their hair in moments of crisis is because it's a way to exert control. It can even be a way of self-harming or punishing oneself. If you love your hair, chopping it off is like poking yourself in a bruise. It's not irreversible damage, and it's low stakes enough to be a spur-of-the-moment decision. Or it can be a way to reclaim one's body after a traumatic moment, a way to reaffirm the idea that you own your hair and you can make decisions for it even if you can't affect a single other thing in your life. But reality is no defense for fiction, and reality doesn't change the fact that this trope is wildly gendered. Fictional men grow long hair when their morality takes a turn for the worse or their mental health begins to crumble. And fictional women cut their hair short to reflect their mental health struggles or have their hair forcibly cut as an act of gender violence.
I'm going to keep looking out for scenes like this and for subversions as I continue to watch more film and television stories, because I find it very interesting and I still don't think I've really gotten to the root of what the hell is happening here, nor what the hell to do about it. My only idea right now is to maybe think about shifting how scenes like this manifest. Maybe next time you feel the urge to write a scene like this, with a character's mental state being reflected in their hair, maybe you go the Black Widow route instead of the Winter Soldier route. Instead of letting men's hair get longer or women's hair get shorter, maybe do something with hair dye or a different style. Maybe someone dyes their hair a new color or stops dyeing their hair, puts it in braids, something like that. And if not that, then please, at least stop doing this same she stares dead-eyed into the mirror and haphazardly chops off her locks scene over and over again. I can think of at least three identical scenes right off the top of my head, and I'm sure there's more. And I wouldn't be the least bit surprised to find that depressed women do this kind of shit in real life specifically because it's modeled for us in our stories. Life imitates art, after all, is more than just an idiom. But anyway. Let's move on from that enormous diversion that I intended to only take a second. It's a hint of an awkward moment when Victor and Allison have an equal and opposite you-cut-your-hair scene, and then Allison drops the bomb about the sparrows not having the briefcase. And I want to point out another thematic undercurrent that's going on in this episode. Allison tries to get Victor to meet her where she's at, emotionally speaking, but Victor only has enough attention to deal with Harlan right now. And Allison, whose entire drive is the loss of her daughter, just rolls her eyes and walks away. Allison, whose drive right now is her missing daughter, and Diego, who so recently became a father, seem to have no awareness of or patience for Victor's relationship with Harlan. Victor was going to be Harlan's step-parent until the Hargreaves found a way to escape the 60s, and Victor admits that he wishes he had never left. What's clear to me is that there's a familial relationship between Victor and Harlan. They are a father and son pair, albeit a weird one given the timey-wimey shenanigans and age difference, and that neither Diego nor Allison can see this really tells me a lot about them. I find them the least compelling of the living Hargreaves for a reason, and I think this extreme oversight on their parts really highlights that reason for me. They're just not especially good people when it all comes down to it. When they're at their best, they're fun, but when they're at their worst, well... Back at the academy, Ben and Faye are trying to make me cringe right off this mortal coil with their bickering. And to be fair to Faye's actress, I don't think she's doing the worst job ever. She's not, like, phenomenal, no, but, but I don't think it would be quite so noticeable if she had someone competent to play against. And as much as it pains me to keep saying this, the actor portraying Ben is just really wildly out of his depth here. I've never complained about him before, but this version of the character seems to simply be beyond the scope of his range, and it's kind of painful to watch. Like, I get it. He's hot. But I need him to bring more to this than just a pretty face and a well-toned torso. Now, the conversation between Faye and Ben and Reginald is fairly interesting. I remain in camp Reginald is playing you all, and so I am very curious to learn what he means when he says that there is, quote, still a way to turn this in their favor. Back at the hotel, Klaus rolls up on Diego and Stanley's argument over the damage Stanley did to the building. Klaus reports Reginald's claims of not knowing anything about the mother's deaths and being drugged by the sparrows, as well as the inexplicable appearance of the, quote, blinding orb of light in the basement. 
Diego disbelieves him, because of course he does, and we move on to Stanley's punishment. Stanley is going to be cleaning up his damage, not to mention working off the debt that he's incurred, and Diego tasks Klaus with keeping an eye on the kid. Which turns out to be awful for Klaus, and lucky for everyone else. If there is anyone in this show who stands a chance of coming back from the dead, it's Klaus, who's already pulled that off at least once that we know of. Now, back at the commission, Lila and Five are following the clues. Everyone is gone, thanks to the rip in the space-time continuum, including Herb, who left a video message of his own disintegration. But while Herb left no good hints about what to do, Lila got her hands on the so-called Master Handbook somehow, and it's got a line about what to do in case of Grandfather Paradox. There is a bunker, apparently, in which the Commission founder and all other essential personnel should gather for their protection. And neither Lila nor Five know anything about any founder, but it's no big surprise who it turns out to be. The second Five starts showing those first signs of catching paradox psychosis, it should click for anyone paying attention, just as it should have clicked for Five and Lila that the founder is obviously Five. Until that moment, it could have been anyone significant, probably not the handler back again, no, but perhaps Victor or Harlan or even Lila herself. But the second five farts on screen for no apparent reason, the reason becomes apparent. There are obviously two fives here. One is within the bunker, and one is without. For now, though, we are back to Luther. He's kinda sorta holding Sloane hostage, the same way she kinda sorta held him hostage an episode or two ago, and he's got this whole touching speech about how he's got feelings for her, and he's fundamentally genuine, and there needs to be trust between them, and I've gotta admit that his whole we're not our families line made me laugh, because, honey, baby, she is your family, though. She wasn't raised with you, but you've got the same dad. That's your sister, whether you can handle admitting it or not. And then there's Klaus and Stanley. It goes about as well as one can expect. These two are bad influences on each other, though less harmfully so than Diego and Allison are for one another. Now, one of the things that Stanley and Klaus discuss in this scene is Stanley's diagnosis of oppositional defiance disorder, and I want to talk about that for a second. Let's start by saying that I do not have an ODD diagnosis and do not intend to speak for, over, or against anyone who does. Perhaps even more importantly, I am not a licensed anything and do not have any formal psychology training or anything of the sort. What I do have, though, is a healthy sense of skepticism and an awareness of the biases baked into modern psychology. So without trying to start a whole thing, I, for one, will say that I don't really think ODD deserves to be a diagnosis in the DSM. In my uneducated perception formed primarily by my own experiences with my own mental health in conjunction with others' claims of their own life experiences and some research from actual clinicians and researchers, I don't think ODD is really a thing on its own. ODD is a word for a collection of symptoms that adults find annoying in children and want to slap a label on. ODD is a collection of behaviors that make for a difficult child, and these behaviors are often seen specifically in children with conditions like ADHD, or sensory processing disorder, or autism, children who have experienced short-term or long-term trauma, and children who are living in emotionally neglectful environments. To be perfectly honest, when I hear that someone's kid has been diagnosed with ODD, what I really hear is that someone is neglecting their neurodivergent child's emotional needs, that the child is struggling, and that the adults in that child's life are writing them off as a difficult kid instead of actually addressing whatever's really going on. 
Then you go ahead and factor in how inherently tied ODD is to a family's socioeconomic status, and you have all the makings of a situation to really piss me the fuck off. As far as I'm concerned, ODD is a label used to victim-blame impoverished, traumatized, and neglected children so that society doesn't have to actually invest any time or money or attention into fixing what is actually going on with these kids. But that is my second rant of the episode, and I feel it's the one more inclined to get me in hot water, so let's move on, shall we? I'm going to be skating right past Klaus letting his barely pubescent nephew keep a pair of stolen women's underwear because, dear God, no, I'm going to pretend I didn't see it. And we find ourselves briefly with Luther and Sloane again as they try to come up with some way to stay together. Then, in another room, Harlan and Victor talk about Sissy, and it's a hard conversation. Harlan is obviously carrying a lot of guilt, and it's not fair for Victor to be trying to assuage his by asking Harlan these questions. I get the impulse, yes, but Harlan's pain here is much more powerful to me than Victor's. Victor leaving Sissy is the least of the troubles in his life. But for Harlan, Victor is now, and has always been, his main problem. As Harlan says, he needed Victor, and Victor let him down. Victor changed Harlan's whole life, turned his entire world upside down, and then disappeared for 50 years. The scene really just makes my heart break for Harlan, and it only gets worse with the reveal at the end of the episode, and the awful thing that Victor says in response. But we'll get there. For now, we're back to Klaus. He and Stanley stop in front of a room with a circular plaque labeling it the White Buffalo Suite, and if this is something Illuminati-adjacent that exists in the real world, I haven't heard of it. It kind of gives secret society, yes, but there's nothing by that name that I know of. The white buffalo, or white bison, is sacred to some Native American tribes, yes, but that's all I can think of in that department. As for real-world white buffalo, they're a bit interesting. There are four different kinds of white buffaloes, including albinos, leucistics, babies who are born white but darken as they age, and bison-cattle hybrids. All of these are extremely rare, and apparently have a natural occurrence of only one in every 10 million births. But when they go into this hotel room, despite Stanley's protests, the place is a whole trip. But first, we're back to the other siblings. Luther and Sloane are trying to sell Diego, Allison, and Victor on their plan. They're suggesting that Sloane go back to her siblings and argue the Umbrella's case for them. But of course, that's not going to work. Faye and Ben don't ever listen to reason, not that we've seen, and Sloane doesn't have anything resembling a backbone. And besides, if it really comes down to choosing between Sloane's well-being and Harlan's, Allison, Diego, and Victor are all going to choose Harlan, some for better reason than others. Allison and Diego end up storming away with no real decisions made, and then we're back to the commission. Like I said, it's obvious what's happening as soon as Five farts. It's not played as a joke, which is good because it's not funny, and so it's obviously a clue instead. It's not included for nothing, that's for sure, and so that means we're getting ready to see another Five. And what could possibly be more juicy for the plot than the twist of Five turning out to be the founder of the commission after two entire seasons of Five working against it? But before we get to anything plot-relevant, we have to deal with Diego and Allison. Like I keep saying, these two are a bad influence on one another. There's no getting around that. But their conversation in the car is a well-warranted one that's been a long time coming. Of all the still-living umbrellas, they are the only people of color. 
The others have their struggles, sure, but Diego and Allison alone share this aspect. Victor might be trans, but he still got white privilege. Klaus might be femme and queer and a substance abuser, but he still got white privilege. Luther might be a simian mutant, but he still has white privilege. Five might be an old man trapped in a child's body, but he still has white privilege. None of them are ever going to have the experience of being othered the same way that Allison and Diego are. And it's nice to finally see them bond over it while exploring the trauma Allison incurred last season. She fought so hard and endured so much, and I love that she's opening up about it to the brother most likely to really concretely get it. Diego, though, is not the brother best equipped to help her deal with it. His idea of therapy is to go beat up racists, which is not the worst thing in the world, but it's not the brightest either. Even if they stay out of legal trouble by doing what they're doing, that doesn't change the simple fact that they could get seriously hurt walking into places where they know their presence alone will start a fight. Diego calls it therapy, but at the end of the day, it's really more like a form of self-harm. It's a piss-poor coping mechanism, a way of trying to relive traumatizing experiences in a way that feels empowering rather than re-traumatizing. But at the end of the day, I think what they're doing here is inherently re-traumatizing. This is maladaptive. This is self-harm. This is not going to help them in the long run. But for now, we're back to Luther, Victor, and Sloane. They meet up with the surviving sparrows to hand over the bodies of Alfonso and Jamie and to let Sloane go, and of course, the sparrows do not uphold their end of the bargain. Ben changes the deal in spite of Sloane and Faye's protests. He wants the umbrellas to hand over Harlan, which obviously isn't going to happen, and he leaves them with the unspoken implication that if they don't do what he asks, this whole thing is going to devolve into yet another fight to the death. Back at the commission, it's finally occurring to Five what's going on with him. He's coming down with a case of paradox psychosis, until he steps into the bunker, at which point it abruptly goes away. Because in the bunker is an old man in a futuristic equivalent of an iron lung. It's old man Five, of course, looking far worse for the wear. He's lost an arm somewhere along the way, and he can't breathe without this machine, and Lila finds this whole thing hilarious. And though the old guy has a hard time talking, he has a hell of a lot to say. He created this bunker specifically for the possibility of a collapse of the space-time continuum, and I think his line about how, quote, all permutations of yourself are able to, quote, exist in this room is pivotal. This line specifically is the reason I'm now suspecting that we're going to see at least one or two more versions of five before the season is over. But more on my theories later. In the meantime, Founder 5 is explaining that thing in the basement. It is, he says, a Kugelblitz, which Young 5 describes as, quote, an extra kinky kind of black hole. Now, a Kugelblitz is actually a theoretical form of black hole. Unlike a normal black hole, which is formed from matter, a Kugelblitz is a black hole formed from radiation so intense as to form an event horizon. This probably won't be relevant to the show's plot, to be perfectly honest, but it's a fun little tidbit nonetheless. But if they were hoping for real answers from the founder, they are disappointed. He's got nothing. All he really says before he dies is, whatever you do, don't save the world. And I have two main theories for that. One, that it means this apocalypse specifically. Don't avert it, because whatever happens after this apocalypse is the best case scenario. How could that possibly be? Don't look at me. I don't know. Maybe there's a key puzzle piece to this that I simply don't have yet? That's perfectly possible. Alternately, my second theory, 
is that the only way out of this mess is to actually prevent Five from trying to stop that very first apocalypse, the one all the way back in season one. The one that ended with every umbrella except for Victor dead at Victor's hands. The one that kicked off the entire show. And if that's where we're heading, oh boy am I curious where we go from here. But the Founder's Corpse offers no more answers, and Five asks Lila to step out of the room. It's not a great idea, I don't think, given that the Kugelblitz could surge again and consume her at any moment, but Five takes the opportunity to investigate his own future corpse. There's a tattoo on its solar plexus, an ornate symbol with some kind of a compassy looking thing on it, and Five cuts off the patch of skin from a cob safekeeping. And, back at the Obsidian, Klaus and Stanley break into the White Buffalo Suite. Stanley says it reminds him of Indiana Jones, but it reminds me oddly of Hotel California by the Eagles, and I can't quite put my finger on why. Something about the severed buffalo head and the pink and the lights is giving me Vegas but make it sinister vibes, which apparently makes me think of that particular song, and I suppose my mind is an enigma. In any case, the white buffalo head reminds Klaus of Reginald, and Stanley goes poking around and touching shit, including a harpoon gun that's another beat of this show that reminds me very strongly of a series of unfortunate events. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. These two series are really cut from very similar cloth, and I desperately hope that someone out there has written some good crossover fic blending these universes, because I see a hell of a lot of potential there. But we've almost reached the end of the episode, and it leaves off on two very sour notes. First, Stanley plus a harpoon gun is a horrific combination. His trigger discipline is exactly what you can expect from a child playing with a gun like it's a toy, and he shoots a harpoon straight through Klaus's chest. The music is too goofy for the situation to have as much weight as it otherwise might, and then, of course, there's the fact that Klaus has already died and come back once before. If this were any other sibling, I might be persuaded to believe that they were actually going to be a ghost from now on. But this is Klaus, and so I'm a good 99% sure that he's going to be back within an episode. I suspect the actor's contract demands that he's in every episode, after all. That does tend to be how these things go. But even as I'm not worried about Klaus, my heart does break a little bit for Stanley. That poor boy doesn't know about Klaus's powers or his previous death, and he certainly can't hear that goofy-ass music or see the Matrix slow-mo death scene that Klaus gets as he falls to the floor. All Stanley sees is his fun uncle dead on the floor because of something that he did, and I feel so awful for that poor kid. Unless Klaus recovers extremely quickly, I'm worried about what Stanley is going to do from here. And so, too, am I worried about Harlan, because he and his trauma get the final scene of the episode. He goes looking for Victor and finds instead the newspaper clippings of all the dead moms, and Harlan freaks out. I, like an idiot, didn't put two and two together until Harlan literally spelled it out for me. Harlan is so upset because he recognizes these women. Because he killed these women. He melted their brains on the day that his own mother died, meaning that he is the trigger for the paradox, and meaning that I was unfortunately subjected to a montage of women being murdered. My least favorite kind of montage, if I'm being honest. But my reaction has got nothing on Victor's. You killed our mothers, he asks. You caused all this? And like, no, dude. He didn't cause shit. He didn't cause this any more than you did. 
so maybe you should go ahead and think before you speak? This poor bastard is so fucking vulnerable right now that if Victor isn't careful, we're going to have a repeat of what happened to him back in season one. Harlan needs kindness and care and understanding right now. What he doesn't need is blame. So, that is my coverage of this episode. I am so excited to continue watching this. I truly had such a hard time. I sat for a good, I don't know, 30 seconds to a minute after watching this episode in the reaction video, just sitting there wondering, can I in any way figure out how to watch another episode today? And I ultimately decided, no, I have other things I need to do with my time. We are sticking to one a day. And now I get to sit down and watch it. Now that I'm recording this, as soon as I'm finished recording this, I'm gonna sit my ass down, I'm gonna watch that episode. I'm convinced that Klaus is going to be in the episode. I wouldn't be terribly surprised if Klaus spends the episode dead, but something else could happen. With the Kugelblitz happening, like sucking up all of reality, anything could really happen. Maybe that means something special happens to dead people right now? I don't know. It could be that anyone who dies gets, like, sucked into the Kugelblitz. Or maybe we see the people who have been sucked into it by virtue of Klaus being dead right now? I don't know. Um, anything could really happen at this point. Klaus's powers are completely wild. They could do anything. He might pop up again in like two seconds and be like, surprise, I'm immortal now. I don't know. Anything could really happen with this man. Like, truly anything. And again, I feel terrible for Stanley. I feel terrible for Harlan. I'm really enjoying all of the different pieces so far this season, though. And I know that Allison and Diego really great on me, and Allison is just wilding out this season. But again, I keep coming back to that thing of... I've been with these characters for so long now, and they've really truly grown on me, so even when we're in the thick of their worst moments at this point, I have a lot more compassion and understanding for them because I've spent so much time with them. Maybe Allison and Diego are going to get a lot worse before they get better? Potentially? It's even possible that they might go full villain or something like that. But right now where I'm at is that I am, you know, trying to be very compassionate for everyone's nonsense, very compassionate toward this bullshit that Victor just pulled on Harlan, very compassionate toward Harlan's bullshit, trying to be very compassionate toward Allison's bullshit. Um, Diego is still giving me some trouble on that front, I've gotta be honest. His bullshit seems very much like you should have solved this in therapy already. But compassion. Compassion is the key here. So I'm very interested to see where everyone evolves from here. What's going to happen with Allison specifically is a really big question mark for me. And then, of course, we're dealing with all of the actual plot stuff. What's going to happen with the Kugelblitz? What the fuck is Reginald up to? Because I do guarantee that he is up to something. He is absolutely up to something. I refuse to believe that he is the doddering old fool that he's, like, trying to pretend he is. He's definitely up to something. I know it, and you guys are gonna know it soon. I'm sure of it. He's up to something. There's no getting around it. That man is always up to something. But beyond that, I am really enjoying this season so far. I'm really excited to see more of it. Um, episode 5 is going to be the halfway point of the season, so hopefully I will have a good grasp on what it is that we're doing as we move into the back half of the show. But all in all, I'm really just looking forward to finishing this up. I'm going to have to pause in the back half of the season because I'm going to be doing two episodes of Stranger Things when they drop, but I know that the wait is going to be pretty tough because I already want to just go ahead and binge. I'm having a lot of fun. But I'm definitely going to be trying to, you know, stick to the plan I've made for myself. One episode a day, podcast. So we'll see how that goes. 
But if you are interested in helping me decide what it is that I'm going to be watching after Umbrella Academy and Stranger Things, $1 patrons get access to polls helping me decide. Um, if you're interested in my reaction videos to Umbrella Academy, Stranger Things, uh, Squid Game, Bly Manor, Midnight Mass, plenty more, um, those are available to $5 and up patrons. The $5 tier offers those videos on a weekly release schedule, and the $10 tier offers those as soon as they are filmed if you're interested in that kind of thing. Um, but beyond that, a rating or a review for the show on your favorite podcatcher is very much appreciated. Um, talk about the show on social media, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, apparently, word of mouth is the big thing for podcasts, so tell a friend. Um, that would be very delightful to me, very much appreciated. I am, like I said, still really enjoying this season. I hope that continues. I can't see that it won't, but there's always a chance. Um, but other than that, I'm going to be back next week with, of course, my next episode of coverage. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Given the plot of this season, I assume that we were dealing with a single permeable timeline. That's not the word I want, is it?